Hello, everyone, and welcome to McGill Cares webcast series supporting family and informal caregivers. I'm Claire Webster, a former caregiver, certified dementia care consultant, and founder of McGill University's Dementia Education Program. I work with a dynamic team of leading healthcare professionals to oversee this program, who include Dr. Jose Moret from the Division of Geriatric Medicine, Dr. Serge Gauthier, McGill University Research Center for Studies in Aging, and Dr. Gerald Fried, McGill Steinberg Center for Simulation and Interactive Learning. These webcasts are made possible thanks to the generosity of donors. Today's topic is the importance of sleep to cognitive health. My guest is Dr. Tan Dang Vu, professor in the Department of Health, kinesiology, that's a tough word to say, and applied physiology at Concordia University, is that he's a neurologist with expertise in sleep medicine. He's also an attending neurologist and the associate director for clinical research at the Institut Universitaire de Gériatrie de Montréal. He's an adjunct professor of neurology and neurosurgery at McGill University and vice president of research of the Canadian Sleep Society as well as a clinical assistant professor of neuroscience at the University of Montreal. His expertise includes human sleep physiology, sleep disorders, and the use of neuroimaging in sleep research. Dr. Tang Dang Vu, welcome to McGill Cares. Hello, Claire. Nice to uh, join uh, you for this uh, very, very interesting series of uh, talks and, uh, and presentations. You have quite the CV. That's amazing. And I'm, I'm very happy to have you here because it seems like more than ever, there is so much, um, there's so much articles and discussion around the importance of sleep and how it mm. relates to cognitive health. Absolutely. There's a lot of uh, attention and a lot of uh, so exciting research findings in that area. So it's, I think it's important to also have time to uh, explain to the public what's, uh, what, what we know about this important topic. Okay. Well, I very much look forward to your presentation. Hello, everyone. So um, I'm going to discuss with you today about uh, the importance of sleep to cognitive health and brain health. So the, um, to study sleep, uh, I just want to show you what, uh, what, how we study sleep in the uh, in the research world. And so actually this is the same setup that uh, a lot of clinical labs have. So to study sleep, we, we have a sleep lab. So in the sleep lab, we do have people who come and sleep uh, in a bedroom and, and they are recorded with, uh, with, with different devices, but particularly with uh, some, uh, what is called a polysomnography, which is basically uh, a, a series of sensors that will measure your brain electrical activity, your muscle activity, your eye movements, and everything will be filmed uh, so that the, uh, we can then uh, analyze uh, the patterns of your activity during sleep and as to how your, you behave if you have any abnormal movements during sleep, for example. So that's how what a typical sleep lab looks like on the left, on the right uh, panels. Uh, that's actually our sleep lab at the Performance Center at Concordia University. Um, and on our left side, you also see uh, some uh, new imaging devices that we use in our own research lab, because what we do is we trying to better understand the mechanism of sleep problems uh, and how sleep impacts brain health. And 
we're using these different uh, brain imaging devices where we can record uh, brain activity and doing different tasks, even during sleep. And we can also um, have uh, uh, an idea of uh, the connections between the different regions of the brain, for example. Okay, so the lab is actually located on two sites uh, on the, at the performance center, which you can see on the left side here, and the Centre de Recherche de l'Institut Universitaire de Gériatrie de Montréal in the central panel here. All right, so a question that often comes when uh, <clears throat> I'm giving talks about sleep is how much hours of sleep do I need? And so on this slide, uh, which is uh, which is which has been published, the, uh, this data has been published by the National Sleep Foundation in the US, it shows you the approximate number of hours that people usually have, uh, hours of sleep, sorry, that people usually have across the lifespan. And as you can see from this slide, it varies a lot uh, to, uh, along the along the lifespan. So uh, <clears throat> as probably most of you know, uh, babies and young children have a lot of sleep. Uh, they do sleep a lot, the majority of the day. And then uh, once you get to uh, being uh, becoming a young adult, then uh, your sleep duration tends to stabilize with an average between seven to nine hours of sleep that most adults would need. Uh, so this doesn't mean that everyone needs that. So some people would need less, some people would need more. So, uh, so that's something important. That's what you see in uh, light blue on the extremities. And now when we, as we age, there is a tendency to uh, have a slightly shorter sleep, uh, as you can see. So from seven to nine, it's becoming from seven to eight. And some people even have six or even five hours of sleep. Um, so this doesn't mean that your sleep is becoming a disturbance or a disorder. It just means that as we age, our what we call sleep architecture. So how our sleep is composed changes with uh, a little bit less of deep sleep, a little more of lighter sleep and more uh, awakenings through the night. So it's, it's normal as we age to wake up more often during the night. So it's not something that should be bothering you in particular except if it does have an impact on the way you're able to function during the day. So if you see that your sleep is becoming more fragmented, you sleep a bit less, but you're able to do whatever you want to do, what you need to do. So seeing your friends, doing, going, doing your groceries, reading, uh, preparing uh, food, uh, doing exercise, then it's fine. It's, it just means that it's a natural evolution of your sleep. Now, if you're becoming tired, if you're uh, if you're being becoming sleepy, or if you are really lacking a lot of attention, concentration, and become unable to do things that you would like to do during the day, so that becomes a, a sleep problem, a sleep disturbance, and and that's what we're going to discuss a little bit uh, today. So the important message I also want to convey is that um, not everyone needs the same amount of sleep, even within the same age group. So sleep duration shouldn't be uh, too much of a, um, a, like an obsession for you. you. You have to, people have to realize that everyone has a different need for sleep because that also depends on the type of sleep that you have. You can have 
six hours of sleep, but having a very good deep sleep. Uh, and you can have nine hours of sleep and love uh, lightest sleep. So sleep duration is only one metric, uh, which is which should not be considered the absolute metric of how well you sleep. All right. So this is about this question, how much uh, sleep I need. And the short answer is you need the amount of sleep that makes you feel rested during the day. Okay, and usually that amount of sleep should be between seven, eight hours, but for some people it could be six hours, for some people it could be nine hours, all right? Okay, so next. So what, why is sleep important? Uh, and how do, how should, why should I care about my sleep quality? Uh, it's because um, when you don't sleep well, when you lack sleep, when you have what, you call, what is called insomnia, which is some difficulties falling asleep, difficulties staying asleep or waking up too early in the morning with some impact on the, uh, your ability to concentrate and perform your activities during the day. Well, when you have this, uh, what is called an insomnia disorder, you have a lot of different health issues that are often associated with that problem. For example, people with insomnia disorder often have a tendency to be more anxious to have more depression. So mental health is really strongly and tightly associated with insomnia. And the, the association goes both ways. So people with insomnia tends to be more anxious and depressed. And people who are depressed and anxious tend to have more often sleep disturbance and difficulties falling or staying asleep. So that's one impact. Some people might uh, be less aware of this, but when you lack sleep, uh, when you have sleep disturbances, your risk of having cardiovascular diseases has been shown to be increased. So there's a high risk for having uh, heart problems, uh, heart diseases, uh, blood hypertension, uh, stroke, and other cardiovascular problems. Uh, and that's because sleep is, and actually a short amount of sleep can really put your system at stress and increase uh, the risk of having a series of uh, vascular problems. It's been so known, demonstrated that uh, insufficient amount of sleep can, uh, or poor sleep can increase the risk of diabetes and decrease uh, what's called glucose tolerance, which is to the ability of your metabolism to um, to process sugar, and this will obviously lead to increased risk of diabetes, okay? Uh, uh, poor sleep can also change the way your brain communicates your uh, need for, for to feed and to eat, and this can lead us to increase uh, weight gain and sometimes to an obesity with people having uh, disturbed sleep. So what about cognitive functions? Because that's the main topic of today. So the studies have shown that people who have insomnia disorders tend to have a variety of uh, uh, performance impairments at different cognitive domains. So it's not all domains of your cognitive functions that are affected, but primarily different domains such as what we call working memory, which is basically your ability of your brain to uh, remember uh, things on the short term to, uh, to, to influence your actions and your decisions as you go during the day. Uh, 
um, that uh, so uh, actually includes the executive functions like uh, problem solving, and also includes your declarative memory, which is your ability to recall uh, new information. For example, things that you've uh, learned at the news, uh, things that people have said to you, something that you've read, uh, new information, basically. So this has been shown to be impaired when you have a poor sleep quality. Now, what about the risk? That's a question I often have. Uh, what about the risk of having a dementia or developing Alzheimer's disease as we age? So you should be aware that the risk of dementia, I mean, uh, is the main risk factor is, you know, is age. So the older you get, the higher your risk is to having to have dementia. But that being said, studies have shown, and there's a couple of studies now have shown on a large number of subjects, like uh, like looking at a large number of people across uh, across a number of years, that when you have a short sleep duration, when you have too little sleep for too long, so you there's a there's an increased risk of developing dementia uh, decades later. And this is uh, a risk that's increased even you take, when you take into account the other risk factors. For example, uh, yeah, the, the existence of other health, uh, health risk factors, uh, your education level, your, your smoking, uh, um, so uh, different other, other risk factors of dementia taken take into account. Sleep still persists as, uh, as uh, uh, bringing an additional risk of about 30% according to recently published study. So that's uh, something that is significant. Uh, so it doesn't mean that uh, when you have a bad sleep, you will necessarily have dementia. So that's very important to so not over uh, worry about this, uh, but this this means that yes, sleep does contribute to the increased risk of having memory problems as we age. I just want to jump in here. Yeah. So I want to jump in here because one thing that I just learned right now was the impact of a lack of sleep on cardiovascular health. I wasn't mm -hmm. aware of that, um, and we know that there is a correlation between cardiovascular health and dementia. So mm -hmm. it really, you could see kind of like the triangle where, you know, a contributing factor to dementia is poor cardiovascular health. So if you're not sleeping well, I mean, it's almost like it it, it doubles your chances, right? Like, I mean, in, in the sense that, you know, mm -hmm. you're not, your cardiovascular health is not well, it also can impact your cognitive health. So there really is a correlation between the three. That's a very good point. So, um, so that's something I haven't uh, discussed it, but why is, how is sleep affecting cognitive health? So there's different mechanisms and different pathways. Certainly uh, poor sleep will contribute to uh, worse brain health through the uh, comorbidities that I've shown, including cardiovascular disease because it increases the risk of cardiovascular diseases. It's, uh, it's been shown also that um, during sleep, uh, your the, uh, the circulation of uh, some, um, uh, some important um, system for clearing waste in your brain is changed. Uh, so basically, your brain produces uh, a lot of different products, metabolites, so the resulting of its activity. 
And these products need to be cleared from the brain and that there's a system uh, with, uh, with uh, which is called the, uh, which has been coined the G lymphatic system. Um, and what we know is that during sleep, this the flow of that system for clearing the products from the brain is increased and doing weight is decreased. So people have hypothesized that because of the because of that, a short amount of sleep or poor sleep quality will decrease this flow and this clearance of different um, uh, products from the brain metabolism in such a way that it will increase the risk of accumulation of different proteins, including one of the important proteins that um, some people know, uh, which is the uh, beta-amyloid protein. The beta-amyloid protein is the one of the proteins that is involved in Alzheimer's disease. And we know that uh, there is an association between the accumulation of this protein in the brain and the lack of sleep or poor sleep. And that's probably one of the mechanisms uh, through which uh, sleep contributes to poor brain health. All right. So there's sort of the mechanisms I can also um, uh, quickly uh, explain that sleep has been shown now for over a lot of different studies that it's, it is a very critical window for the consolidation of your memories. So when you learn your information, your memory goes through different stages. So it's encoded and then it's consolidated for a better recall afterwards. And this includes the, uh, this involves the uh, transfer of the information from certain regions of the brain, such as the hippocampus, which is really the place where your brain encodes new information to other parts of the brain, the cortex, uh, where your information is stored. And we know that during a sleep, there's a, there's a process of transfer of this information to those store, storage space, if you want, in the brain. So if you do cut your sleep, you will disrupt this uh, process of being able to consolidate your memories. Uh, uh, to uh, to yeah for a better recall afterwards. So there, there are the, the relationship between sleep and cognitive health is obviously very complex because it involves different paths. It involves um, also not only the brain but also uh, the the uh, the health in general and different other um, comorbidities. Um, but certainly now it's uh, it's 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 clear that sleep is important for the brain. Um, so another interesting fact is that uh, because of all the um, consequences of what poor sleep involves, this is actually leading to quite a lot of different uh, social economic impact. So there's been uh, one study in Quebec that has estimated the cost of insomnia to $6.6 billion per year uh, for Quebecers. Um, and sorry, oops. And that's due to the uh, direct and indirect cost of insomnia. And particularly, uh, the, the, as you can see on the right side, the largest portion being the loss of productivity uh, um, due to insomnia. Uh, other costs include the uh, um, absence from work, um, cost of healthcare, uh, and, and so on. So that's not uh, trivial problems uh, for the individual and for the society. So, um, so questions I often have is what can I do 
So the good news is that there are some solutions to help you um, uh, find a better sleep, okay? So at first there are different sleep problems. So in order to have, uh, to know which sleep intervention is the best suited for you, that you need to talk to your healthcare professional to make sure that you don't have any other sleep problem. For example, if you have, uh, if you stop breathing during the night, which is called sleep apnea, that would require the medical testing and uh, the specific treatment with, uh, especially with a, a machine called a CPAP, which will um, prevent you from stopping breathing at night. There's also the types of sleep disturbances but if you have insomnia, so if you have difficulties falling and, or staying asleep, now the first and, 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 and most important step is first to see whether you can change your uh, sleep habits and behaviors to uh, improve your sleep. And so <clears throat> there, there are different strategies to help you do that. And those strategies have been uh, developed and, and, and gathered into what is called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is basically, it sounds complicated, but it's basically a, a series of strategies put together uh, to help you uh, decrease the, uh, the behaviors, the habits, and uh, the factors that might make you, um, might make your insomnia uh, perpetuate, like persist over time. So, on the right side, you see the different components that are usually um, covered in the cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So typically that's a, a, a therapy that has been developed uh, for, uh, for a session with a therapist, usually a psychologist trained for CBTI, either individually or in groups. But there's been a lot of developments in the recent years to make that therapy also available for the larger public without the need for a therapist in the first place. So, it, so this can be also uh, learned through uh, self-help therapy. And there are some manuals, books written for larger audiences that will explain you in details uh, what you could do. There are so now some online platforms and, uh, and programs that have been developed to model the CBTI approach and that everyone can also access. So I'm just going to give you a short summary of what it usually consists of. So, um, but before I just want to, to highlight that uh, uh, CBTI, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia has been shown to has is now recommended the first line treatment for chronic insomnia across the different uh, medical and psychological associations uh, around the world. So it's really considered first line therapy before medication. That's very important. Uh, and 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 why? It's because it's been shown to work in uh, about two thirds of people. So which is quite a large amount of people who uh, from the within those who have sleep um, disturbances, uh, sleep or sleep disruption or insomnia. So uh, two thirds of people would benefit from this. And the other reasons why it's considered first line treatment is that it's because it has very few side effects, obviously. So because it's mainly a change in your habits. So you're not risking uh, to, uh, to develop side effects. And finally, 
Uh, it's also the first time treatment because it's been shown to uh, the effects when it's if, when it works. It's been shown to uh, to 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 remain there for a long time. Okay, uh, while with some medications, the effects tends to wane over time. So that's uh, uh, why it's important to consider this. So what 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 can I do to uh, in, to implement to uh, to uh, include some elements of this CBTI? So first, one of the first uh, approach, one of the first strategies is making sure that what we call sleep hygiene is well respected. So these are, these can be for some people, some, something that makes sense, but you know, it's, it's good to make sure that you actually implement those, uh, those, uh, those tips. First, it's important to maintain regular sleep uh, schedules. So what, what mean, what means, what's meant by regular is that you, try, you should try to um, go to bed and, and get out of the bed at, uh, at about the same time or approximately the same time every day. Why is this important? It's important because uh, as we age uh, in particular, our uh, sleep-wake cycles uh, and the system that uh, will uh, synchronize our sleep-wake cycles according to the night-day uh, cycle are is less efficient and that's part of normal aging. So you're more likely, your, your sleep is more likely to drift if you don't, uh, if you don't respect uh, regular schedules because your brain, your clock in the brain, you have a sort of a biological clock in the brain is less efficient. So it's important to help this, uh, this uh, biological clock in your brain to work by, uh, by keeping your sleep schedules as regular as possible. It doesn't have to be regular at the minute, obviously, but it just means that you should try to avoid uh, having some different bedtimes by, like, let's say one day you'd sleep at 9 p.m., the other day you'd sleep, you'd go to bed at midnight, and you know, avoiding these large uh, differences in bedtimes is important. Another thing that's important is that you should avoid drinking caffeinated beverages, particularly in the afternoon and most importantly in the evening. So this might make sense that, for example, a lot of people um, think that tea does not contain caffeine, but it does. So I, I love tea, I would drink tea in the morning, uh, that's no problem. But if you want to uh, drink uh, hot beverages in the evening, you should favor, for example, a herbal tea, which does not contain caffeine, but tea, green tea, black tea, uh, they contains caffeine. Of course, coffee does. And uh, should also be uh, careful about uh, taking decaf because decaf uh, means that it contains less caffeine. Doesn't mean that it contains no caffeine. Okay, so if you do, if you're someone who doesn't have sleep problems, so it's less of a problem, but if you start having sleep difficulties falling asleep or staying asleep, that's something you should be careful about. So physical activity is a very important drive for your need for sleep, for your sleep pressure. So if you would stay during the whole day, basically watching TV or lying on the couch, you are, first, it's not very good for your health in general. Uh, it could be for your brain health. We you know that physical activity is also an important way to uh, decrease your risk of dementia. Um, but we also know that physical activity is important to uh, help you sleep at night. 
because it will make you build your need to sleep later during the night. So it's important to at least uh, exercise or just walk or stay active for a minimum of 30 minutes per day, ideally an hour. Um, and uh, you, yeah, and preferably in the uh, during the day, in the afternoon, or not later than early evening, if possible. So um, in the same way, encouraging social activity is important, just to make your not only your body but just your brain engaged, and keeping yourself busy uh, outside of uh, passive activities. So it's important to still uh, continue seeing uh, one possible because now it's not easy, but this could be even through virtual platforms or uh, outside keeping distances, you are able to still do a bit of social activities. So meals, so that's a question I often have, what should I eat or what should I not eat before going to bed? So um, there's, no, there's no like uh, very clear studies about what type of, uh, of what type of, uh, of exact, uh, uh, food I should eat or not eat, uh, like should I eat more proteins, more carbs, more vegetables? Uh, so that's just difficult to say, but on the advice in general is to have a balanced meal, which is basically first respecting your meal schedule across the day. So um, in the same way that sleep, having a regular sleep schedule is important, have a, having a regular uh, meal uh, schedule is so important just to help your brain, your your magical clock, as I said, synchronize. Okay, so because this also help your clock say, well, if you, if you eat at the usual time, so morning, noon, and evening, this will uh, help your brain understand this contrast between day and night. So, I think more more important than uh, what the composition of the meal itself, it's the schedule of the meal that's important for sleep. And balance means that obviously it's important to avoid, for example, having a very heavy dinner and, and fewer, uh, fewer meals early during the day. It's better to have balanced meals with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, without a disproportionate, disproportionate amount of food at night, for example, because this would, uh, would um, might disrupt your sleep. We know that eating too much might disrupt your sleep. Um, I talked about uh, caffeine uh, in your meals. Uh, should avoid so, and your drinks should avoid everything that is stimulating. Uh, and one thing that often uh, people like, enjoy, and uh, is alcohol, and a particular glass of wine the evening at, with dinner. So um, I don't mean to say that uh, you should avoid wine at all costs in the evening, but we should be aware that alcohol, um, even though it was sometimes used as a help for sleep, it's actually a very bad <laughs> sleeping uh, pill or tip. Uh, it's been shown that um, alcohol actually makes you feel, yeah, a bit drowsy or sleepy. It is true, but what it even produces, it will produce a very fragmented sleep. So people, and that's something that you can easily uh, testify. People spell. I know, I, I know that if I drink alcohol, I'll have a, a very disrupted night sleep. I wake up during the night and morning, I don't feel very refreshed. That's because alcohol will, might make you sleep quicker, but will 
disrupt your sleep architecture. So if you have sleep problems, it's important to limit the amount of alcohol in the evening. So one glass of wine sometime, uh, 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 dinner is fine, but I would not recommend more than one glass and, 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 and not every day if possible. So uh, bedroom environment, obviously this is something that makes sense, making sure that your sleep is sleeping in a comfortable environment, your mattress is comfortable. Uh, well, obviously, I mean, the, the advertising you see on TV that, that try to convince you that your, your bed is, is, is everything that will uh, affect your sleep quality is, is, is obviously overstated, but it's important to make sure that you sleep on a comfortable uh, mattress and bedding. And that you so sleep in an environment that is quiet, uh, dark enough, so with blinds or curtains that will um, prevent light from coming in, uh, well ventilated and not too warm, not too cold, but especially not too warm, uh, to make sure that you're in the best um, environment. So another important aspect is nap. And that's often mm -hmm. a question I have, Do should I nap? Is nap a good thing? So nap is can be a good thing and can be a bad thing. So naps have been shown to benefit uh, memory. Naps have been shown to short nap have been shown to improve your brain function after the nap. But the problem with nap is that we know that long naps, uh, especially naps of uh, an hour, two hours, and later in the day can decrease your ability to fall asleep because it will decrease the sleep pressure. Your, your ability to fall asleep is really dependent on two things. First, what I was, calling to you, or what I was mentioning to you earlier, your biological clock. Uh, but secondly, it's your sleep pressure. And your sleep pressure is basically dependent on how active and how awake you stay during the day. The longer time you stay awake, then the more you'll be pressured to sleep. If you do nap, you basically decrease your pressure for a bit, which is fine if you take a 15, 20, or max 30 minutes nap. But if you take an hour, two hours nap, you will significantly decrease your pressure for sleep for the night, and you will have less uh, ability to fall asleep and to stay asleep at night. So naps is should be taken <clears throat> if you need a nap, you have to take it ideally uh, not later than early afternoons, for example, after lunch and for no, no longer than 20 or max 30 minutes. So uh, if you take a nap and you'll know that you might be sleeping over that amount of time, please uh, set your alarm clock in such a way that after 20 or 30 minutes, you will know that you have to get out of uh, your nap. And finally, and that's particularly important as we age, is to make sure that you receive enough light during the day, particularly in the early hours of the morning, and that you keep your environment dark at night. So this has two implications. First, when you wake up, if you live in a place where you don't have received a lot of light because you don't have a lot of windows or just because it's been dark and, and, and rainy and, and just very cloudy for a, long, uh, for, uh, a lot of days, make sure to have enough light exposure. So usually the sunlight is the best, the sunlight is the best way to, to help you get enough light. Uh, light is basically because your brain, your light is not only providing message about uh, the visual information to your brain, it also activates the circuits that will promote wakefulness. 
So when you light, when you receive light, you actually help your brain uh, uh, wake up. So it's important to get enough light in the morning. So, and if needs be, uh, especially as you age, you might uh, need to uh, purchase some, uh, some light therapy devices that you can, uh, for example, uh, place on your table when you eat breakfast and, and, and keep your eyes exposed to light for an hour or so. It's important also to keep darkness at night. And this is some application, practical implications in our daily life where we are often exposed to screens, um, uh, especially now like computer screens uh, and TV screens and smartphone screens and so on. So you have to understand that light from those screens do also uh, include some information that will tend to activate your brain. So it's, it's, it's great during the day, but night is can, this can have the potential to delay your sleep because it will activate your brain too much. So try to uh, decrease the amount of exposure to, to smartphones and screens and especially right before going to bed. So Dr. Dangvu, I've got some questions regarding uh, some of these points that you've made. So many of us get into bed um, with watching Netflix or you know our favorite show on our iPad or laptop. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is that that's not a good idea to do that? So what I'm saying is that if you have um, difficulties to fall asleep or stay asleep, that's something that you might want to avoid. Uh, especially too close to bedtime, and especially if you're watching something that is extremely, you know, exciting or stimulating, uh, uh, like an action movie or very something you're very engaged in terms of uh, emotions. So you want to keep uh, you keep, you want to avoid that to um, to to, to uh, some extent if you have sleep difficulties already. Mm -hmm. The next one is about the tea. So I am definitely a tea drinker um, at the end of the night, but I do buy um, teas where it says like, for instance, there's one that's called sleepy time. Um, and it's, it recommends that you take it half an hour before you plan to fall asleep. The challenge that I find though, is that I drink this tea, but then I wake up in the middle of the night a couple of times to go to the washroom. So yeah, exactly. what is, you know, what is, I mean, it's supposed to keep you asleep, but at the same time, then it can interfere with, with our bladder. So how does, how does that so, work? So that's a very good question. So actually there's been, there are, I know there are some teas like they are sold as sleepy, sleepy time or something. Mm -hmm. So there's right now there's no evidence that any of those um, herbal products actually does have a consistent effect on helping you sleep. I guess that it's more the, uh, the whole process of getting like a warm drink and, and then getting yourself comfortable, that is really important to help you sleep. Now, what you mentioned is very important is uh, that if you drink too much drinks, then that you, you, you would likely wake up more often at night. So that's something important, especially as you age, uh, try to not drink too much uh, liquid. And, 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 you know, if you drink, if you drink uh, caffeinated beverages that might or so make you uh, need to go to bathroom even more. So that's something to take into account. So I would uh, really encourage if you have sleep difficulties, just drink uh, only one cup of uh, herbal tea earlier in the evening if possible. Not try not to drink too much. Uh, and 
the best, the, the best, the most important thing is really to do something that will make you feel comfortable and and detached from all your worries and concerns of the day. It's important, for example, if you have sleep difficulties, not to look at your agenda, uh, think about what uh, you need to do the next day after some time. So it's important to be able to disconnect and reserve these uh, couple of hours before bedtime to just make things that make that that you think are pleasant, that you find yourself pleasant, which could be, you know, it could be reading a, a book or even watching TV if it's not too late uh, and if it's not too uh, exciting. So. So I have time for one last question, which is an important one, which is the role of medication. So pharmaceutical and non-pharmaceutical supplements. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so that's a very important question. So the... Um, so what we what we know is that uh, first medications, as I said, should not be the first line treatment, but should only be given uh, after you consult with your physician, and ideally for a limited amount of time uh, to help you uh, get back to your uh, better sleep for a couple of weeks, uh, or sometimes a couple of months. But this should be really uh, regularly reassessed by a doctor. Not all medications are actually approved. Uh, not approved, but I would say indicated or recommended for sleep. Among them, all the over-the-counter medications actually not recommended for sleep. They're sold as, uh, as sleep helping sleep. But that's because all those products have been developed to actually not for sleep. They've been developed for other indications. And one of the side effects is that they make you feel drowsy. That's why that's why they are sold as helping you sleep. But that's not these medications have been have not been shown to provide consistent benefit uh, beneficial effect uh, on your sleep. So this should be avoided. You avoid counter medications. There are a couple of medications that are indicated specifically for insomnia. These are prescribed medications, uh, and when taking them, it's important to take them at the lowest dose possible uh, under medical. Uh, monitoring and uh, for the sh for uh, a short period of time, if possible, and very important because a lot I know that a lot of people out there have been taking these medications sometimes for years. Uh, it's it's never too late to try to stop those medications, but the key is to uh, stop them very gradually over time. Uh, for example, if you've been taking benzodiazepines for years, you don't want to stop them quickly. And, show, and, and over one, one week or two weeks, because this will fail and this will make you feel even more uh, insomniac and then you you just become completely addicted to those medications. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you'll notice that those medications after years, they don't really work anymore, but if you if you skip one night, you will feel very terrible. So it's very important, the key to succeed in decreasing those medications, stopping them, and you should try to, because they have a lot of side effects like even for your memory, for example, is to start very slowly over periods of two, three, or even four months. And that's something that your pharmacist can help you with or your family physician to give you a very progressive withdrawal program. And this will really help you stop those medications that after use, they're usually not necessary or recommended anymore. Well, Dr. Dang Vu, thank you so much for this really informative presentation on sleep. Um, so talk to us a little bit about your studies and how uh, people could get involved in uh, sleep studies. 
So we, we have uh, different studies going on in the lab where we are studying different aspects of our sleep. For example, one of our studies is to try to better understand insomnia and the effect of insomnia treatment, particularly with the uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So we're actually currently recruiting. If you have difficulties falling asleep or staying asleep, uh, and if you age between 25 and 65 years old and don't take any medications, you can contact us at this number or uh, this email, insomnia.concordia at gmail.com. It's quite easy to remember, insomnia.concordia at gmail.com. And we'll be uh, providing you more information about the study during which you'll be able to sleep in the lab and so receive uh, a therapy uh, free of charge. Uh, we also have studies that are for older, uh, people and as a young ones, we're trying to look at the differences in sleep and how, uh, how sleep is differently important for memory between young and older people. So if you're aged between 18 and 30 or uh, between 55 and 85 years old, you want to, and you don't have a sleep problem, but you just want to contribute to a better understanding of an important sleep, then you can contact us, uh, the email below, study at gmail.com. So concordiasleepstudy at gmail.com and we'd be happy to provide you more information. And finally, if you are among those people who have been taking medication for years and you age above 60 years old and over and you'd like to uh, participate in research, we do have a research program in which we do provide the therapy and help people decrease their medication of a 16-week program. So you can contact us if you're taking a medication like benzodiazepines or zopiclone, zolpidem. Uh, and the email is below. It's our research coordinator, Miss Caroline Desrosiers at the qgm.qc.ca. So we have the information below. Please contact us. If you do contact us for, with another of the other contact information, we'll be redirecting you to the right study anyway, so don't worry too much. But uh, we do have different studies. Uh, and if you would like to contribute to our better understanding of sleep problem and how they impact brain health, please feel free to contact us. Thank you. Dr. Deng Vu, thank you so much for this very, very informative uh, presentation today. Uh, like, as I mentioned earlier, there's so much information right now out there in the news about the correlation between sleep and cognitive health. So it was very enlightening. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Claire, and I'd be happy to discuss that further with you in another occasion, if I if need to be. Okay, thank you. So please join me on Wednesday, July 7th for the topic of understanding early onset dementia. My guest is Dr. Pedro Rosanetto, professor of neurology at McGill University and the director of the McGill University Research Center for Studies in Aging. This webcast is an initiative of the McGill Dementia Education Program, which is funded by private donations. If you would like to make a contribution to our program or for more information, please visit us at mcgill.ca slash dementia. And if you would like to join our mailing list and stay connected on all of our upcoming educational events, please email us at dementia at mcgill.ca. Thank you for watching.